The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. It's more than two years since the pandemic started, but China is grappling with its worst coronavirus outbreak. Meanwhile, tiny Lithuania teaches Germany a lesson about how to give up Russian gas. Tune in as our columnists discuss the latest top stories. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm Peter Fallarsen, coming to you from London's Canary Wharf. This week, Breaking Views columnists in Asia have been debating the fallout of the renewed outbreak of COVID-19 in the Chinese metropolis of Shanghai. Meanwhile, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine reaches the end of its seventh week, our colleagues in Europe have been looking at an interesting example of a country that weaned itself off Russian gas. First up, Yaowen Chen, Pete Sweeney and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong talk about the coronavirus in China. The mega city of Shanghai, the country's wealthiest city and home to multinationals like Tesla and Apple, is grappling with the unthinkable problem of food shortages as officials battle an outbreak of COVID-19. China's private tech companies are being drafted in to help tackle the crisis, yet with draconian lockdown measures affecting nearly one-third of China's 1.4 billion people, the country is now at risk of a self-inflicted recession. Next, Lisa Yuka and Ed Cropley discuss Lithuania. The tiny Baltic nation stopped buying Russian gas on April 1st, marking the culmination of more than a decade of planning to break Moscow's grip on its economy. It's an interesting case study for Germany, is belatedly regretting its dependence on imported gas from Russia in the wake of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Hope you enjoy listening. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Views Room. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm sitting here in Hong Kong chatting with my colleagues Chen Yawen and Katrina Hamlin about the uh, developments in Shanghai. Yawan, can you talk us through exactly like the timeline here of how we got to the point where every, nearly everybody in Shanghai is locked inside their apartments? Because it seemed like the city during the first outbreak in 2020, the experience was nowhere near this harsh. What, what happened? So Shanghai has basically enjoyed nearly two years of um, disrupted lives, even though it also tightened policies during the initial outbreak in 2020. But it was relatively loose. It's more of a precautionary measure where, you know, people are probably not traveling much, but um, they can go to, you know, supermarkets to buy stuff. They can go shopping if they want. So to some some extent, it was just like a part of a precautionary nationwide um, a slowdown in activity during that period. But this time, Shanghai is basically the epicenter of the Omicron outbreak in China, where, you know, after nearly two weeks of complete lockdown of Almost every one of its 26 million residents, they're still reporting um, over 25,000 cases a day. So um, I think during the past two weeks, there were a lot of um, social chaos, logistic problems, just because the government really um, reversed what it promised to not be a lockdown. And, you know, they closed restaurants, they shut a lot of shops and really um, imposed policies that prevented people from going out of their house. A lot of people were reporting food shortages. Um, they, they're not getting medical help. They're separated from their children and pets when the government is sending even like symptomatic patients to uh, quarantine centers. So can you talk a little bit more about the food? Because this is an interesting area. The government has been, I mean, the central government in Beijing has been cracking down pretty hard on the food delivery companies, especially, you know, they wanted them to pay their drivers more and and all these other kind of regulatory changes that have put pressure on companies like Meituan. And now here they are, kind of this key position 
trying to keep 26 million people fed when all the restaurants are closed. How's that? How's that relationship working out? Uh, it's incredibly challenging for those companies because you would naturally expect that they're going to get, you know, surging waters and business will, will be great. But in reality, um, you know, one industry executive was telling us the operational capacity for Meituan and Pierce in Shanghai is probably just 10 to 20 percent of their normal capacity because a lot of their drivers are either, uh, you know, locked down at home or um, they're not securing uh, the special permits for their trucks. And there are just a lot of checkpoints at different highway tolls that's preventing them from basically shipping stuff from outside of Shanghai. So I think even a lot of some of the warehouses are being sealed. All these problems have, have created um, a logistic bottleneck for these companies. And they are under a lot of regulatory pressures just because they've been invited to the government press conferences, basically helping them fending off questions like from ordinary residents or reporters, like, why are we not getting enough food? It's, it's interesting about Shanghai. So Shanghai is, is the country's first financial markets. It's one of the more sophisticated cities in China economically. Um, there's been this big surge in services, fancy restaurants, stock brokerages, so on and so forth. But it's also a big manufacturing hub still. It, it's held on to a lot of production, and particularly automotive. And Katrina, this is something that's come into focus because Tesla obviously has its a big factory in Shanghai. And at the same time, another big center for automobile manufacturing, Jilin province, is the other big viral epicenter, such as it were, of the outbreak and is also heavily locked down. This is a very important industry inside China and also, you know, Chinese part suppliers feed other brands abroad. How big do you see the impact being on the automotive industry from these lockdowns? I think Tesla's actually a pretty good microcosm to look at that through because as you said they've set up their gigafactory in shanghai actually just in the last two years on the eve of the pandemic that's when their first car rolled off and since then it's become a hugely important center for them and they've been able to double their sales in china because they're manufacturing there tesla is you know a very kind of special automaker it's different from the rest but actually the industry as a whole has been going through a slightly similar process. In the last two years, we've seen the export of automobiles out of China as a whole doubling, and the export of parts has also risen by about 40%. So that suggests that the country and, and Shanghai, you know, as part of the country, has become so much more important to the auto industry just in the last couple of years. And so this is really painful for the auto industry and the whole supply chain around it. And it's come at the same time as war in Ukraine, which just makes everything worse because raw materials prices are really high. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bad news if you're an automaker. I mean, China is sticking with the COVID zero plan. It's planned to eradicate, not live with the virus. And it's kind of made this a point of national pride. But Yawen, you, you have written that this is really putting economic performance at risk. How how bad could this get if the whole country has to replicate Shanghai's experience or to get in front of it, like lockdown preemptively, which will have a similar economic effect if you if you freeze everybody inside their <laughs> inside their houses. Yeah, it's already happening. Like, um, so according to a Nomura survey, nearly one third of the population contributing to some 40 percent of GDP are already under some sort of lockdown. Um, and we're seeing more regular testings and sudden lockdowns whenever a positive case is identified. So it's I think it's putting a lot of people into this fear that they could just be suddenly sealed inside their apartments. That's why we're seeing a lot of foot hoarding. 
uh, which is also probably means that they're not consumers are not spending on travel or like jewelry shopping or anything. And it's it's a particularly challenging time for private businesses because they they will be um, faced with this heightened uncertainty for the foreseeable future where, you know, they, they probably will hesitate about new investments or hiring new people. Uh, do you think the central government is realizes how bad this could get or, or believes is I mean, there's been some some anxious noises coming out of top officials. But I mean, obviously, they watched what has happened to Hong Kong. We had a similar outbreak get out of control. And now they're seeing it in Shanghai. I mean, do you think they'll have to I mean, do they have political room to back off on this COVID zero commitment after having invested so much in it? Can Can they relax? I'm struggling to see that after what happened in Shanghai. And in fact, I think we're seeing more political signal sent sent by, you know, either the vice premier Sun Chenlan, who is in Shanghai, uh, mobilizing local, you know, officials and or state media like People's Daily, who are very clearly saying, you know, COVID zero is a political task and we have to really stick to it. So so this is really this just really means that China is willing to tolerate or thinks it can tolerate the economic damage. That all these measures have have caused. It's an interesting moment, I think, because um, Shanghai is kind of a special city. I mean, you're you're from Wuhan, Yawan, and that was one of the had one of the roughest experiences. Is was it the roughest? Seventy six days of, of lockdown. Is that right? You guys celebrated the anniversary the other day of, of its end. Um, yeah, it's really interesting though to me that you know even during the initial days of Wuhan's lockdown, they didn't close supermarkets and shops. People are just kind of confined inside the city. What happened in Shanghai was that everybody was suddenly pushed into back into their apartments and they didn't have any, you know, sufficient preparations, which really shows the, you know, political task of containing this outbreak is so important that local officials just couldn't afford to, you know, ignoring that, oh, we have to really use very dramatic measures, even though they just, I think they had pledged a few days before that they would never have a full lockdown. Well, what do you make of all the stories on social media? I mean, Katrina, you lived in Shanghai. Um, We know what the city looks like. I think it's really clear to us why Shanghai is economically important, right? We've been saying it has a GDP the size of Poland, a population the size of Australia. But yeah, the optics of it are also just really striking and and really really sad for those of us that know the city right like it's normally a really lively feisty community who have a lot going on in terms of like business nightlife all of that and seeing people now these images of people at the windows screaming and so on it's like seeing a caged animal you know it might not be the worst thing china's gone through in the last couple of years but visually in terms of the coverage it's one of the most striking i've seen you know, it just seems so clumsy. And I think that's what's throwing people because Shanghai is known. It was, was I mean, I think, you know, it's startling to people is like in, in the narrative in a lot of Chinese top tier cities, Beijing, Shanghai in particular, will will kind of look down on, you know, the provincial officials who screw up. Right. So it's a usually, you know, and it's a handy excuse for the Communist Party to say, like, well, you know, the fundamental governing structure and governance is good. You know, we're in charge. But. We are continually frustrated by these incompetent or corrupt local officials who, you know, for one reason or another, fail to implement policy in a good way. So like Wuhan, you know, the outbreak was was fumbled in the beginning. And that was, you know, it's never a systemic issue. It's it's because of these 
you know, yokels or whatever. And, and that feeds into the kind of snobby attitudes you have in the top tier cities as well. Like if it only weren't for these, these silly people, you know, failing to follow instructions correctly, everything would be fine. But that's much harder to say when it's Shanghai and you've got these famous venture capitalists, you know, out there on social media trying to find bread because they're cute. They're stuck in their houses. This was not supposed to be this city happened in. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, it's yeah, it's it's this huge economic powerhouse as well. But like just symbolically, it's not Beijing, but it's almost Beijing. And I think a lot of the elite in in the country can see this happening to them now. And I mean, the really scary thing is that like you can my read from from talking to people, you know, is that there's still a great deal of national pride and a resistance to kind of admitting that COVID zero is not going to work. There's a heavy investment in cultivating the belief that that the first wave was a huge success for China. And therefore, psychologically, it's going to be hard for anybody to admit that, like, well, this time around, we're going to have to do something differently. But still, I mean, even after you get done with people saying, well, you know, look at the United States and all this, what about ism of like you know, the death toll is still nowhere near what it is in the U.S. And that's all true. You have to wonder, like, where does it stop? Yeah, I think the debate in China right now is like very black and white. It's either you you're pro COVID zero or you're lying flat, which means that you're not doing anything. So it, it seems like there's no room for anything in the middle. Um, so even though, you know, there are, there have been calls for, oh, then we should approve foreign mRNA vaccines to make, make it more effective for the local population or other, other measures that the government might be able to do. For example, to increase the vaccination rate among the elderly. I think those discussions are really being muted as well. So Lisa, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, one of the most thorny issues for Europe is what to do about its very hefty reliance on on Russian hydrocarbon imports, especially gas. This is a really big problem for for countries like Germany, which have something like 50% of their gas uh, needs supplied by Russia. But you've been looking into examples in Europe of of countries that have had even more dependence and yet have managed to get it down to zero. Yes, indeed, Ed. Uh, I have looked at uh, Lithuania, which is uh, a republic on the Baltic and a former Soviet uh, republic. And uh, when they became independent, they were 100% dependent for the gas imports from Russia. I mean, over the years, uh, they basically decided to to start uh, cutting this reliance and they actually designed a policy which, uh, you know, was thought through more than decades ago to, to achieve energy independence. I mean, we're talking about energy independence from Russia today, but, you know, they thought about it uh, back then. And their example shows that it can be done. And on the 1st of April, they stopped importing gas from Russia. How did they do that? I mean, they basically um, focused on uh, LNG, so liquid natural gas, and they decided to pay for uh, a regasification unit, which is basically a vessel, a ship that allows to turn liquid gas into normal gas that we use. Um, again, you know, for them, it was quite an effort. But uh, because, I mean, they're a small state and these ships can cost, you know, $400 million, but they manage. So this could maybe be a lesson for a bigger country like Germany. And I seem to remember that the um, the ship in question that's now parked um, off the Lithuanian coast, I presume, um, it's got quite a, a, a powerful name, hasn't it? 
Indeed, it is called independence, and uh, it was um, it was docked at the port of Klaipeda in 2014 already. So that kind of shows that they were thinking about this independence strategy even before the Crimean War uh, of 2014. Um, and you know, the the name gives reference to their vision. So, I mean, I can understand how it might be possible for a single ship to supply sufficient quantities of gas in liquid form that is then turned into gaseous form. I can understand how that might be possible for an economy of, of the size of Lithuania, which is obviously relatively small. But you know, Germany is a monster, biggest economy in Europe. Is it really possible that ships like this can supply sufficient quantities of gas to keep the lights on and to keep homes heated throughout the next winter? Germany has imported 58 billion cubic meters of gas from Russia, uh, which is uh, obviously um, quite large because the country is large and it's obviously a big uh, manufacturing power. I spoke to Reistad energy experts and they were explaining to me that uh, uh, the three LNG regasification projects, which Germany had been thinking about but never really took off ground, could handle about 22 billion cubic meters of gas. So that's not all of it, but it's quite a significant portion. I mean, let's remember that Germany has no regasification facilities, has uh, not, uh, you know, uh, no nuclear power. So not really, you know, a lot of wiggle room there. But um, these LNG facilities could help, in particular, if uh, Germany were to acquire uh, what are called, you know, floating regasification units. I mean, these are essentially ships similar to what Lithuania is using, and they are quicker uh, to, to, to be sourced because, I mean, you can maybe within a year, you know, get one of those uh, or, or more. Uh, the problem, obviously, is that uh, more countries are thinking about bulking up their LNG uh, import capacity. And so there will be demand, you know, for this type of ships, which obviously are quite uh, specific and not everyone can build. So, so basically, Germany is using, is hoping to use or could use if they go down the route that Lithuania has chosen. They could use these ships to replace the gas pipeline infrastructure, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, and the ones coming across Ukraine um, that it's been using in the past. I mean, one could almost call this Nord Stream 3 or <laughs> Nord Stream Take 3. Yes, I mean, obviously, they would not be able to replace everything, but, you know, they could... Uh, probably, as I mentioned, you know, replace quite a large chunk within one maximum two years, which is quite an improvement because, you know, you heavily reduce your dependence. dependency. Mm. Obviously, this is music to the years of those companies that are producing or leasing, because you can also lease those vessels. I mean, Norway's Herg is one. Uh, there's another company in the US called Golar LNG. So these players obviously are now in focus and we've seen the shares you know some of these companies going up by two-thirds since the beginning of the war and presumably the not only the the, the makers of lng um, ships but also the suppliers of gas that would be what qatar um, the united states um, are also going to be benefiting from from this increased demand Indeed, and Germany in particular, which is kind of the focus uh, for Europe uh, of this uh, 
uh, repower EU strategy of moving away from Russia, um, you know, Germany is looking at LNG supplies and we know they've had discussions with Qatar, for instance, which is a very large producer of LNG, but they need these regasification units, you know, they need the facilities on their soil uh, or, or, or let's say, you know, docked near the ports to, to, to bring, you know, the gas home. Well, at least it's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's always amazing when small countries offer big countries uh, very telling and important lessons in, in how to uh, organise their economies. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. A pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. Subscribe to Fusedrum and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Spotify or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.